The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Podcast. I'm Randall James, and uh, uh, does anyone know the rules for drowning? <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> uh, with me is Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Random Pal. Morning. All right, Tyler, what's going on? Uh, we're drowning today. <laughs> uh, no, today... That's we're... a good metaphor, actually. <laughs> <laughs> today, we're going to talk about DMing or GMing your first game. So chances are a lot of people out there listening to the podcast may have already done this before, but even if you have, I'd like you to stick around because we're also going to offer some advice about how to support a first-time DM. If you have not DM'd or jammed your first time and want to, or if you know someone who's going to, this is going to be a really helpful episode for you because we've got a lot of nice things to say. And some of them are useful. Yeah, and, and you know, in case that you do plan to show this episode to someone who has never heard anything from us before, who maybe doesn't even have the context and just wants to jump right in, DM, of course, refers to Dungeon Master. GM refers to Game Mother. No, I'm not going to elaborate. <laughs> yeah, so I guess the big question for the first person approaching DMing, especially if everybody's new, everybody's coming to it for the first time, you know, table new players plus new DM, because, yeah, you want to play D&D or you want to play a tabletop game. How well do you think somebody needs to know the rules? Less than you'd think. It's it's very easy in D&D or Pathfinder to have someone hand you the DM book and say, okay, you've got a week, good luck. Just like learning to play for the first time, reading the whole book cover to cover and memorizing the contents is not necessary. If you know the game well enough to be a player and do okay without constantly flipping through the player's handbook, you're going to be totally fine. It is okay to get the rules wrong. It is okay to make things up on the fly and be corrected later. You do not need an encyclopedic knowledge of the rules, but giving them a quick look is definitely a good idea. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that we talk about pretty frequently is that as a DMGM, the primary rule is rule zero. What you say goes, and if you are listening to this as a player, absolutely, you know, maybe try and say, like, in my experience, this is typically played out really well when it's handled this way, if you're kind of disagreeing about some particular point. But at the end of the day, it's your table, play it the way you want it, and then if, uh, and and we'll get to this in a bit, but if something maybe didn't work out great, your players will talk to you, and they'll be like, hey, this particular thing, it really didn't feel good, it dragged the game out so as much as you need to know the rules is enough to be consistent and enough to make sure that people are having fun because realistically that's the only judge of success right i feel like i say this frequently it's still true as long as everyone at the table is having fun you're doing your job yeah i what i would say for this there's so many rules that you could be focused on 
I definitely think picking up the adventure you plan on running, and if you're a first-time DM, you know, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but I think running a, a published module, like a published one-shot, something like this, is a fantastic way to get started. Really going through and saying, what rules am I likely to have to adjudicate? So if we're talking about 5e, if you have creatures that are going to fight that grapple, okay, do you know the grappling rules? Uh, if one of the creatures flies, do you know the flying rules? Looking at that and letting that guide where you focus on rules is going to help you have a great table. And then even having those references prepared so that you can, okay, I don't quite remember how this went, but I can pop back to it right quick. You know, that can be useful. If you do have experienced players at the table, I think that they can be a fantastic resource. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, particularly if you're listening to the podcast, you are likely to be that experienced player. Like I was saying earlier, be a little bit gentle, you know, especially if someone is DMing for like the very first time, they've got a ton of stuff going on. They are maybe going to be too willing if you try and be like, oh, no, maybe it should be like this. And then maybe that's going to give them a bad experience, right? That's why I was saying, you know, you can definitely make some gentle suggestions. One of the other things that will be really helpful, especially if they're trying to DM for the first time and there are other new players, be a resource for the other players. Take that off of the DM's shoulders as much as possible because, you know, really, we're all here to just play a game enjoy a story, have fun, the rules are there so that we have something consistent that we can all agree on to follow, but that doesn't mean that they're set in stone. That doesn't mean that they're the absolute gospel truth. No, you know, and if there's something obvious, you know, if someone's like, oh, yes, we're, we're," someone's like, I want to climb a tree, and you're like, uh, I don't think how to climb a tree right now, and someone says, oh, I'll do this, and as long as the DM says, yeah, that makes sense, if you, as an experienced player, know that's not how that works, don't worry about it. You know, let the obvious adjudication stand, and then talk to them later. Yeah, I'm obviously going to roll a nature check to climb a tree. It's a, I, you know, <laughs> I can't stop you. If you're that DM with an experienced player at the table, it is also totally fine to ask them questions, especially about the rules. If you are looking at someone trying to climb a tree and just can't come up with a decision, it's totally fine to say, hey, experienced player, what should be done to handle this? And they might say, oh, yes, this seems like a good case for athletics. And you can take that feedback or ignore it. That's totally fine. But the comfort of having someone at the table who you can ask questions of live and not feel pressure or not feel a sense of failure like these are your friends at the table everyone's there to have a good time and if you're going to have more fun by asking for help do it it's a great idea yeah so there it is quite often that i am the dm playing with the more experienced player i play a few games with tyler uh what i have found is that i will often go and say like do you remember how this goes and if tyler's like yeah it's obviously this i'll tend to take that and we'll run with it, and then I will look it up later. Like, I'll make a note. Specifically, I'll go read later, and I'll go try to get myself to the same level of understanding so that next time it isn't that way. It also happens from time to time that you get in that situation where it's like, oh, uh, you know, uh, grappling's a bad example because, yeah, dear God, Tyler understands the rules of grappling. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you, you get in a situation where it's like, I don't exactly remember how to adjudicate this. What I do often as a DM is I say, okay, we're going to do it this way. Like, we're just going to do a contested check, or I'm just going to have you roll and then add, you know, this modifier, that modifier, with the idea, and and I'll I'll tell the table, we're going to do it this way. Uh, Player, after your turn, go look up how this actually works. 
and then I'll keep the game going to keep the pace going. Uh, one of the things that I find as a DM makes me the most nervous is if everybody's flipping through the rule book to try to figure out how to do something. When ultimately, a lot of times when you, it's like, oh, I want to get this right. I, you know, I don't want to be that inexperienced DM. Realistically, you're trying to figure out if they get the butter on the toast or not. You know, like what you're doing is trivial. It probably isn't the most critical thing to get right. So just adjudicate. And then assign one person to figure it out while we move on to let the next people go. I, I guess generally, how do you feel about that? Do you do you think it's okay for people to be like, okay, let's take a five-minute break. Okay, that's being ridiculous because <laughs> I'm setting you up to say no. How long is too long to look up a rule to get it right versus just making a decision and then getting it right next time? I think that that's really going to depend on the way that you're going to look it up. Flipping through a book is going to be hard for that. If you're just going to go on like D&D Beyond and you know, if you're like, okay, we have suddenly all lost our minds. No one knows how Grapple works. If you go to D&D Beyond and you type in Grapple, you're going to get an answer in 20 seconds. Yeah. Right? So if you have access to a digital resource like that that is easily searchable, maybe that is something. And again, I would, I would sort of say that the stakes um, are kind of going to be my, my bellwether there. Like, if we're in combat and like, okay, this is the difference between whether or not I can pin this dragon to the ground so that my friends can beat the tar out of it. Okay, I really want to know that right now, and I want to make sure that we do that good. I would say 30 seconds. Like, if you can get it done in 30 seconds or less, great. I'll, I'll let you look it up right now, because absolutely. If it's something where, like, we're going to need to do this, then yeah. I think what you said, just, I'm going to adjudicate this the way that I want to, and then you're going to look it up so that we have the absolute gospel truth for next time. That's how I would absolutely put those two together. And if... You look something up and people have different opinions about how to interpret the text of a rule. Always defer to the DM. Don't let rules arguments derail the game. You can always look it up again later and have that discussion after the session. But a mid-game rules argument isn't fun for anybody. All right. Well, I think that that's a pretty great segue. So as we're talking about digital things versus uh, hardcover books and whatnot. So what do you actually need to have to get started DMing? And realistically, the answer is kind of just like the rules. Do you do you have those in a physical thing like the the PHP, the DMG? Do you have D and D Beyond? There's absolutely value in both, um, and there's drawbacks to both. And so the PHP being the player's handbook, the DMG being the dungeon master's guide. Yes. Yeah. Nobody yeah. ever calls the monster manual the MM. They actually did. So in in third edition, that was a, a more common convention because in three point X we had five of them. Um, <laughs> MM1, MM2? Uh-huh. Yeah, MM1, MM2, did it zero index? Okay, no. no. Well, because they just had the Monster Manual, and then Watsi and their Infinite Wisdom came out with the Monster Manual, too. Yeah, and then you had Monster Manual, A New Hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and by the time you got to Revengeance, we were just way off the rails. Well, that was a callback to the previous editions where it was Monstrous Manual, Monstrous Manual 2. Like, they'd done that all the way back through, I think, first edition. Uh, fifth edition is the first time where they actually said, we're not just going to call it Monster Manual 2. We'll come up with a more creative name. And they have explicitly said that it's, quote, not a Monster Manual. Volo's Guide to, or Volo's Guide to Monsters, More in Kindness, Tome of Foes, etc. Monsters of the Multiverse. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, but digital copies, like you, you brought up a second ago how easy it is to be able to go to D&D Beyond. Um, I will say 100% that is when I have to solve one of these things and I think, okay, look, I should be able to get this right because my what I anticipate 
is that I'm just going to Google it and get an answer. It is always grapple space D&D beyond click done. Yeah, and of course the Google search is generally going to work out better for that than the actual D&D Beyond search. Like D&D Beyond will give you a perfect text search of the entire site, but there is some question about whether or not it will actually get you where you want to go or if you're just going to find the grapple ability of the giant frog by accident. Yeah, Yeah, now I know there are 98 monsters which can grapple, and that's exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like I said, there's absolutely benefits and drawbacks to both. You know, having the physical is a great way to just be like, all right, I know it's somewhere in the combat section. Open it, flip through. You're going to be able to flip through things a lot easier than you're going to be able to like scroll through the way that D&D Beyond has things organized because sometimes it's all on one page, sometimes it's on separate pages. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a mishmash. But with that said, no matter how you have your books, well, I guess this only applies if you have physical books, a lot of times people, particularly uh, veteran players who are maybe trying to DM for the first time, you probably have a decent quantity of books. You know, maybe you've got a whole shelf full of all kinds of pretty things. And realistically, you don't need most of those um, for DMing. You don't need most of those for the actual act of DMing a session. You're not going to go refer to something in Volos as like a rules adjudication, probably. You're not going to go refer to Eberron for a Faerun campaign, probably, unless someone casts Dream of the Blue Veil, in which case... You can tell your player to knock that off. <laughs> so we're playing Rhyme of the Frostmaiden, and why do you why did you bring Descent into Avernus? It's like, well, what if we trip and fall through a portal of hell? I don't. <laughs> Stranger things have happened. Isn't that how that campaign starts? It might be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, definitely, you want to travel light. The player's handbook and the dungeon master's guide. That's gonna answer ninety nine point something percent of all of your problems, and everything else just adjudicate and look up later, like we've talked about. The 5th edition Dungeon Master's Guide and the PF2 Game Mastery Guide are both excellent resources for Game Masters, but they're not resources that you want to use at the table. Like the, cool. they, they have a lot of advice on how to run your game, which I strongly encourage you to read. They've got a lot of things like variant rules, tables on building monsters and building encounters. But if you're scrambling and putting together a monster in the middle of an encounter, maybe save that for when you get home. Yes, so the the game mastery books can often stay home. The core rulebook for your game or the player's handbook for D&D will typically have the rules that you need. And yeah, obviously digital digital copies of anything is going to save you a ton of time. We should say D&D Beyond, by default, gives you access to the SRD, which stands for... Source Resource... System Resource Documents. System Resource Documents. System Reference Documents. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> producer Dan, quick, cut it. Uh, this is a reference document. If you purchase content through D&D Beyond, so for instance, if you purchase the Player's Handbook, if you purchase the Dungeon Master's Guide through D&D Beyond, that's what's going to make it searchable. D&D Beyond also does have like a sharing feature so that you can bring people into a campaign and then share the resources so that everybody within that campaign has access. And that's something that, you know, as a group, you should have conversations with and figure out how to take advantage of that to the fullest. Uh, having that set up is then going to make getting to the details of the setting of Eberron a lot easier than needing to flip through the book. I think if you're trying to do something like this live. And if you're playing Pathfinder, uh, the rules for Pathfinder are all available for free on Archives of Nethys, and then they're working on uh, Pathfinder Nexus by the same people who build D&D Beyond. I think that's coming out soonish, sometime in the next couple months. Other games don't typically have as good software tools, but hopefully at least you've got PDFs that you can pull up on a laptop or something. Another thing that's useful in a game 
built around click clack math rocks click clack math rocks yeah you, you no, want to have some of those yeah and now actually with that said if you don't and for whatever reason you can't get to them it is still actually possible to play this game there's some kind of quick hacks that you can do that people have done on things like car trips that sort of thing um you can just like take a piece of paper write all the numbers down cut them up or uh, tear them up and put them into a hat. Just draw it like that. Do you have a, a D6 hat, a D12 hat, a D20 hat? I, I mean, you could, <laughs> although realistically, you know, like we said, D20 is absolutely the primary mechanic. So if you just do a D21 and then just say to your players, and you do average damage with your rolls, problem solved. Same thing. Yeah, that, that's pretty fair. Maybe at that point, introduce something like the Pathfinder 2 critical success thing where, like, oh, I'll give you max damage on a crit. Sure. Um, or on a, a high enough success and then average the rest of the time. I'm also, I'm going to point out, I think it's really quaint and wonderful that you brought paper into this. <laughs> In um, a pen and paper role-playing game? <laughs> yeah, I think it's wonderful. Um, I'll point out, we have supercomputers in our pockets these days. So That's true. Uh, any device that you have, you would be able to get to a random is just staring daggers at me right now. <laughs> no, I mean, most, most apps have, uh, most apps, most operating systems for phones, uh, the two of them at this point, have dice rolling apps that are available. Also, you can literally Google, like, roll D6, and Google will roll dice for you. I'm just saying that I'm, I'm working off of stories of people, you know, deployed and uh, okay, playing D&D right. or in prison, actually, mm-hmm. and playing D&D, which you can't have dice because they don't want to promote gambling. Yeah, that's uh, fair. Yeah, I've seen some really clever solutions in prison. People have built tops out of paper and, like, a toothpick and, like, written the numbers on the top and you spin it. People are very, very inventive. But I imagine most people listening to this podcast aren't going to be playing from prison. If you are deployed, yes, a folder full of uh, slips of paper works great. Uh, <laughs> the the face palms so many uh back in super early editions they actually had trouble getting dice to print the D box sets um because the only people making them were for teaching supplies so it was like this one company making polyhedral dice as an educational product D comes along as like we need all of your dice now and also more dice than you could possibly produce. So there was a while where the box sets would actually include envelopes with pieces of paper to cut out, putting the envelope to use as your randomizer. All of this stuff has been done before, and it has worked historically. But yes, for a lot of people, a dice roller app on your phone is going to work great. If you're using a system that has a unique dice mechanic, like uh, Shadowrun, Fate... Uh, fantasy flight star wars the one ring anything that has custom dice the company will typically have a dice roller app for their game usually you have to pay for them usually there's a free alternative so look around get what you need but just having a basic dice roller app as a backup even in case you just forget your dice when you go to play a game always a great idea yeah and so i will say that this one is kind of optional and to the degree to which you trust your players. Uh, a DM screen is very helpful to keep things that you don't want them looking at. It's absolutely not required. And, you know, realistically, it's five bucks a cardboard. If you've got just, like, a three-ring binder, set that up at an angle. That's great. If you've got cardboard box, turn it up on one side, play in the cardboard box. Plus, you get to feel like you're, you know, playing with puppets. It's great. But, yeah, like, you can 
get really creative in just how you hide things from players if you want to at all. Let's talk about the things that you would want to hide from the players in order to give them a good game. Um, so I'll say when I DM, what I tend to do is all the monsters I plan on my players encountering, I actually bring up on D&D Beyond, and then I just flip taps as I need to. And if I, you know, if they're fighting two different monsters at once, I'll have them both open and visible, and I have that facing to where only I can see it, which means that I don't have the monster manual out. What I'll say is that if you are just doing this with a monster manual, it, it, if your players can clearly see it, and they're talking to this person, and they're having a great conversation, and then one of them wants to make an inside check, and you flip to the ancient red dragon. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's very much a thing that you would that you would want to keep hidden. And even if you are using the monster manual, just you know, do it later. This is very much a way where uh, you can real life bluff your players. Uh, you know, have roll some dice, and say, "Oh, yep, nothing." Blah blah blah. Go look up later. See if you were right. <laughs> um, they'll never know. They'll never know, right? This, this is this is the great thing, and this is one of the things in in which uh, Dungeons and Dragons is really just like theater as cooperative storytelling. They don't know what the play is. They don't know the script. It, any change you make, that's as far as they're concerned. That's how it was meant to be. That's exactly how I wrote the story that I you know painstakingly for the past month. Yep. I. Uh, <laughs> The other thing I'll say that I think is worth keeping hidden is like current monster HP. Yes. Um, I tend to take average monster HP with the understanding that I'm then going to maybe tweak at the end. So I, I've made the mistake a few times of letting a monster die very anticlimactically because technically it hit zero. And what I, I think I've internalized and learned is that I'll, let's go and get it to zero from average health Plus or minus, like, if you do a really awesome move, like you use a high-level spell, or you, you burn a maneuver, and it ultimately leads to, like, this awesome damage, and, like, it's cool and it's theatrical, and it has 5 HP left, congrats, you killed it. Vice versa, if, like, oh, you know, I, I went in and I, I got the unarmed strike in, and then everything else missed, and I dealt 6 damage as a monk, I might let it stand as long as the party's not in real danger. Well, let's just let's see what happens next. Like let's <laughs> let's keep going a little bit to get something really awesome. Uh, sorry, monk. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, the the current HP I think is definitely worth hiding because otherwise your players, you know, if, even if they're peeking and and they only see it once, they can kind of then internalize like, okay, well this is almost over, and so you start as a player you start metagaming instead of just enjoying the combat rounds. Yeah, absolutely. A thing with that, so 5th edition doesn't technically have this, but this is, again, one of the, like, two, three good things that I think 4th edition gave us. You're going to want to describe to your players how they're doing. We, we've talked about this a little bit before, but realistically, you know, it. Uh, well, we're going to delve into what defines a game for a second. So um, <laughs> one of the things uh, that a game design author whose work we will link in the show notes the one of the ways that she defines a game is that it has to have a feedback system if you're just swinging into these bags of hit points and you're not getting any feedback you have no idea if your attacks are doing damage you have no idea if maybe there's some kind of resistance immunity that you're swinging into letting players know that in visceral in character ways is very satisfying and lets them be more tactical in their actions so if you uh want to talk about specifically the thing that i was going for when a monster is bloodied 
while it's no longer a mechanic in this edition, bloodied in fourth edition just meant below half health. Um, and that's a really easy way for players to know, okay, we have put some good work onto this monster. Let's finish this one off before we try and move on to something else. And maybe just take a quick second when, you know, an attack does bring up a little half to describe, uh, you know, that last one took a good chunk out of it, roars in pain, and sets its gaze on you, looking like it's going to charge you soon. Something like that. You know, just a really easy way to describe, okay, you're doing it, it's bloodied. It's really not happy. <laughs> so in addition to hiding stuff behind your DM screen, your GM screen, there are also typically tables on the back of those screens, which can be very helpful. The 5th edition DM screen has a lot of things like prices for things that your players might buy offhand, like food, trail rations, things like that. Uh, a lot of things that you would typically need to reference from a table are on there. I think the drowning rules might be on there. <laughs> so, so stuff that you probably aren't going to memorize because it's just like in a table or specific numbers. Those are frequently going to be on your GM screen. Fantasy Flight Star Wars, the GM screen has the the tables of things that you can do with your boosts, setbacks, triumphs, and disasters. Is it disasters? The one for the one ring has the benefits for the different combat stances and things like that, plus a a big chunk of the journey rules. So those things that are going to be hard to memorize that you're going to be frequently looking up in the rule books are very frequently on the back of those DMGM screens. Even if you don't have anything to hide, those are frequently a great resource to have on hand for when you need to look things up. And in a lot of cases, they're also available as a digital copy. So obviously you can't put a PDF up as a DM screen, but it's very nice as a reference. But with the power of glue stick and cardboard, you can put it up (laughs) as a DM screen. But is it then a PDF? Well, it's a printed document. Actually, so that's another thing, right? If you are using a laptop as your primary reference, then yes, actually, you can, in fact. Um, and that's a, a laptop is a perfectly valid DM screen. It does hide information, and it's a good way to make sure that you have what you need available to you. All right, so you you can go for other things. You know, if, if you want, um, you can have maps, uh, like the um, we've talked about before. If you're playing an in-person game, what year is it? You can absolutely make combat visualization easier by having some sort of map. Tyler is a, a very big fan of like the graph paper that you can just draw on, you know, the one-inch grid graph paper. I really like the reusable fabric w- with the coating um, maps. I bought some grid maps at GaryCon. I'm very excited about those. Yeah, th- there are... Um, there... Dry erase markable... Yeah, there are, like, the, that sort of map that I was talking about, but, like, pre-printed on basically paper that's laminated. Um, so, like, you get the art under it, and then you can draw on it. <clears throat> There's lots of companies make those. I mean, they're generally the, the big ones, like your your Watsi, your Paizo, they actually just make their own, but then also people other make them. Yeah, I guess at, at a high level, first time DM, you're running, let's say, a published adventure, and that's going to be the recommendation I'm going to make when we talk about this. Do you need to do grid combat? If you're running 5e. No. no. Yeah. Asterisk. Yeah. I, I'm just going to say no, no asterisk. <laughs> just no, you don't. Here's the thing. No is fine. And you can absolutely theater of the mind it. We're both being really bet hedgy on that because 
fifth edition is so very crunchy and and i mean previous editions were even crunchier right but D is such a combat focused one we've talked about this a lot yeah it's the tempura battered edition versus our deep fried editions of york exactly <laughs> a lot of things kind of only make sense i mean so you have to play the combat considering what it looks like on a grid even if you're just imagining it you have to understand that I am leaving a safety donut because that's a huge rule. You have to understand, you know, like if I have a reach weapon, you need to know where everything within 10 feet of you is. That's important. Having a grid map, even if it's just, I'm going to pull out a piece of bog standard graph paper and I'm going to put down pennies to visualize things. That's going to help you a lot because I mean, especially if you are a first time DM trying to like, get all of this stuff in your brain, trying to adjudicate all of the shenanigans, having something to at least take one burden off of you of trying to visualize what's going on is going to help you a lot. No, I think that makes perfect sense. What I'll call out, so physical maps are great, especially for a physical game. If you're doing this online, there's a lot of great online tools for doing the same thing, right? So we have Roll20, we have Foundry. I think by the summer you'll have Tabula Soto. You know, there's a there's a lot of really good solutions for building grids, building maps, a lot of pre-rendered stuff that you can use. And so for places where you know you're going to have combat, you know, if you're walking around a castle, you don't necessarily need a grid map for that castle, new DM. You can just describe it, walk through, give box text, especially if the adventure provides it to you. But if you know there's likely going to be combat in the throne room or there's going to be combat, you know, up the tower, you'll be able to find grids for those if you want to use them, whether that be live or whether it be through some online resource. If you're going to be playing without a grid, uh, that is a perfectly valid way to play, but you may need to discuss that with your players and say, look, we're playing without a grid, so I won't be able to handle certain things. Like, if you're building a character to abuse opportunity attacks, things like that, you're going to want that grid. So maybe you just don't bring that character to this game. And just setting that expectation with your players beforehand will remove a lot of those problems and make theater of the mind work a lot better. Yeah, I think there's a lot of great things that we could actually say about do's and don'ts for your characters that you are bringing to a first-time DM. And as a first-time DM, maybe you should put like some limitations on what your players bring to you. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, this is uh, a great reason to have a session zero, right? Um, we, we talk about this a lot. Go listen to the session zero episode. But realistically, as a first-time DM, your DM, if you are not the DM or you as a DM, like I said before, they're going to have a lot on their plate. And bringing, you know, some three different class, abuse some mechanic monstrosity is unkind. Make, yeah. Making your DM look up whether or not coffee locks are actually allowed <laughs> at the first session. Right. Yeah. D don't. Just, just don't do that. Right. You know, we're all here to have fun. And there, there can absolutely be some fun in that kind of competitive Dungeons & Dragons. You know, Tyler and I uh, famously do this to each other a lot. Yes. The first-time DM is not the place for that. Um, and so as, as the first-time DM, please, please have a session zero. Lay out, uh, you know, kind of everything that you are going to say, I will take this, I will not take this, please be kind. And like we've talked about in the episode, you know, you want to say, like, here's the adventure, try and make something that's going to fit. Um, here's, like Tyler was talking about, like, you know, I, I just can't do a grid for whatever reason, so 
try to you know stay away from something that cares about the grid so much and just go from there. Yeah. Another thing I'll say, so we had a great podcast where we described or we discussed the topic, what level should you be running your one shots? What level should you be running your game? Uh, I think whether this be a one shot or a long running campaign, you as a first time DM, that is a wonderful reason to just start with level one characters. Absolutely. Because they can't be that complicated. Things can't go off the rails so much that they're not controllable. You know, I don't care if at the end of the session you're like, congratulations, everybody's level three. You did it. <laughs> um, because it helps you get the confidence. It helps you understand where you're going, how your players want to play their characters, so that when you come back for that next session in the campaign, everything's going to be a lot tighter, better put together. If you're running an adventure, uh, like a, a published campaign, a published module, uh, likely there's going to be recommendations about what levels you should be at. Um, and if you're running a one-shot, you should probably be choosing a one-shot that allows lower-level characters, because generally lower-level characters are going to be less complex to adjudicate things for as a DM. Yeah, and, and one thing you may actually want to consider is just writing up the characters yourself so that you know what mechanics you're going to be dealing with, particularly if you also have a lot of new players. This can actually be a way to help ease them into the game, um, but it's also a way to just remove some of the the pile of randomness and stuff that you have to think about. So, you know, if you just want to give your party, like, great, here's your uh, fighter clerk, wizard rogue, go. Now, this can be one of the things that you do talk about in a session zero. That was four different characters. That was not one character. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if, if you're a masochist, you can absolutely, but no. Yeah, well, what Randall said was absolutely right. Um, but this is one of the things that you could really reasonably cover in that session zero. Say, hey, I've got a lot going on. Um, I want to make characters so that I know both kind of the, the power level that I can expect and so that I can build them more functionally into my world. And it, that is a great way to sell this because that's absolutely true, right? And then you just have to deliver on it later. When you write the characters, you more effectively control the narrative. And, I mean, there are even, like, some published modules that do this right you know like um if you've listened to our uh where am i going with that um if you've listened to our so there's some pre-published modules that um actually do that if you've listened to our gary con uh new stuff so as i was wondering i came across uh, a company that does a really big really inclusive box that is the adventure all like item cards for all of it maps for all of it and characters for all of it. And that really helps the characters fit into the narrative because when you know what they are, then you know how to build the story around them. So that's the thing that you can talk to your players about in a session zero. Say, hey, are you cool with this? If so, great, that's going to make it easier for me, and we're going to go like this. The one thing I'll say is that that might be a better thing to do if you know you're only running a one-shot. You know, let everybody... Like, okay, look, this one game, you're going to play the character, or you're going to choose from four characters because I kind of need this to get going. But once you've established that and you say, okay, good, everybody had a great time, we're going to turn this into a campaign, that might be a wonderful opportunity to just say, hand wave, bring your own characters next time, it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Bring your own characters. Or, you know, you could say, I like the narrative that I've built off of these personalities. So, you know, if you enjoyed that personality, great. Uh, and instead of... Bilbo the Thief Rogue, you're now Bilbo the Gnome Barbarian. Great. Nailed it. I don't know what happened. <laughs> if you're looking at DMing for the first time and you're hearing us say, like, yes, bring the player's pre-gen characters, if you're thinking, oh gosh, now I have to make pre-gen characters, 
don't worry about it. There are plenty available for free online. For 5e, there are pre-gen characters for free on DMs Guild running all the way from 1st to 20th level, and they use the class options from the SRD, so those are generally the mechanically simplest characters, so they're very easy to pick up and play. They're very easy on the DM. Um, a lot of published one-shots for other systems will include will include pre-generated characters, so like Paizo famously does something cool for free RPG day every year. Uh, I ran their Little Trouble in Big Absalom adventure recently and includes both the adventure and six pre-generated characters that you can just pass out to the players. So take that burden off yourself. Let somebody else do it for you. Yeah, and so actually when we played uh, Big Trouble in Little Absalom, that was my second time playing PF2. And it was awesome to pick a character because I actually had a hard time understanding how to build a character until I got my hand on the core rulebook. And so just having, even as a player, having that character handed to me was fantastic to play because I got to see how a druid worked. I had this beautiful cat named Precious, and it was wonderful. Precious the house cat slash tank. Yes, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that was a murder cat. All right, well, so we've, we've hinted at it a few times during the podcast here. One of the things that I really personally strongly recommend if you're going to start DMing, start small. Run a, a one-shot, maybe run like a, a you know three-shot that's meant to be played over a course of 10 hours or something. I know that a lot of times people want to get into DMing because they have this idea in mind for this epic story, this epic campaign, and they they want to share that with people. And that's awesome. Like, I fully believe that your story is going to be great, your players are going to love it, and your first time DMing is 100% not the place to introduce it. You are going to have a ton going on. You're going to need to get experience because what you have is a book and what players do is not a book. And until you are comfortable with improvising on the fly for, okay, well, here's the prince of this land who, as far as my story was concerned, was going to be the primary plot point, he's going to get married to someone who is secretly a demon, and then she takes the kingdom and, like, drags it down to the abyss, and, oh, God, my players just killed him. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, right? So this is why you really want to get your feet under you running something like a one-shot. Now, you can write it yourself if you want to. Just make sure that you write about two hours of content. We'll get to that in a moment. Or there's a ton of one-shots that you can pick up for free, like Tyler talked about, that you can um, buy if you really like the, the sound of one. Run something short. Get your feet under you, and then keep going. So, by the way, Improv DM sitting at home, the right answer is the prince had a younger brother, steps up, marries the demon, campaign goes on. <laughs> I have had people DM their forced... I have also had people DM Forza. It was crazy. <laughs> I was a car. <laughs> I have had people DM for the first time with me as a player and i always really love that experience i've had people run one shots i've had or, sorry i've had people run published modules i've had people run things that they created themselves and both have been great but the people who created things themselves uh, i always encourage them to keep the story very very simple because that does make things a lot easier your first time um, i've had dms that were completely thrown off by things like what do you mean your ac is 19 which 
not a difficult AC to have in 5th edition, but was still enough that it threw off the balance of all of their encounters. So it was a great learning experience. But expect to be surprised your first game. Even if you've been playing for a long time, things feel very different from the other side of the table sometimes. So those surprises that your players are going to throw, yeah, absolutely knock you off track. So in particular, when we talk about published modules, a resource that I'm going to recommend is the Adventure Week catalog. Uh, They have this idea of the mini dungeons where... You know, there's a few rooms to go through. There's like one map, maybe two maps for you to look at. You can literally search for, I want a party of four level one adventurers or five level one adventurers. You know, pick any level. Uh, and you'll find a bunch of modules. So let's say you have a little story you want to tell. You can easily find one of these mini dungeons, have mechanically everything worked out for you. Appropriate monsters for them to fight in the adventure, appropriate traps, triggers, these sorts of things for them to hit. Because if you're going to screw anything up as a dungeon master your first time, it isn't going to be the story. It's going to be the mechanics. So adopting something like one of these mini dungeons, letting that lay out everything mechanical for you, and then glue glue a little story on top of it that you want to tell, it kind of gives you the best of both worlds, and it's going to come across to your players like you really put this thing together well. Now, and one of the things that I'm going to say, so once you have picked your, your mini dungeon, your published module, or written your own stuff, read it thoroughly. This particularly matters if you're playing something you you, you know, got from somebody else, but there's very few things that feel worse than when a DM's like, oh, God, something else was uh, supposed to happen a little bit ago, and... It, uh, it it breaks the the story if I don't. So I guess we're we're gonna time travel back a room and then right. That kind of immersion breaking is not great. Now, if you have to, you have to, and your players will be hopefully accommodating because you are playing with decent folks who understand that it's your first time DMing. Great, but really one of the things that I cannot stress enough: read your stuff thoroughly because that's going to give you the context that you need to improvise. And generally, if you're reading a published module, it's not going to be a ton of reading. The amount of text to run a single session is between like five and ten pages at most. So it's you're not going to be reading a novel. You don't have to memorize a ton of things. You don't have to stress that much about it. As you are reading through, you will get into the mechanics. Be very comfortable with the mechanics of whatever that primary focus is. So if this is a just your standard dungeon crawl, but let's say it's a dungeon crawl in a dark cave, get real familiar with light, how light works, you know, the difference between dim light, how dark vision works in 5th edition, because it's not how dark vision worked in 3.x. Or, you know, if you are, like, running your own thing and it's, like, primarily social, get real comfortable with target DCs for diplomacy, get real comfortable with, you know, telling players contested roles like, yes, you know, diplomacy versus wisdom insight, all that good jazz. As you read through, as you pick up the mechanics, go check that out in the DMG, go check that out in the PHB. That'll make you very confident. And confidence, really where I want to go here. Even if you aren't 100% sure of something, present it. Just be like, you know what, we're going to do it this way. Your confidence will make the players comfortable. And so even if you are being confident about something that you're not sure of, be confident like that. And then say, we're going to do it this way. We'll go look it up later. And as long as you are consistent in how you do that, you know, even if you do look it up after the session, but you, you're like, okay, well, I'm not exactly sure how we're going to grapple this time, but it's going to be based on nature because it's a tree hug, right? <laughs> and so as long as you make it the same thing every time, 
there will be that sense of fairness, and that's going to get buy-in from your players. What Random's really trying to say is your players can smell fear. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. And, and again, hopefully you're playing this with friends. That's actually one of the things that um, we really want to recommend. Don't try to first-time DM with strangers. You can. It's way harder. Your friends are going to be some, or are going to be people who are there to support you, who will provide feedback because, you know, there is that mutual trust. And so they understand you are doing your best. And here is something that I can provide. Like, even if they don't know the system very well, they can absolutely provide you feedback on the experience, right? So this is like, man, you you froze up here and i know that it maybe didn't feel seem like a lot of time for you but when you were looking at this thing that was like five minutes that helpful reminder can be very good and hopefully again these are your friends so they'll deliver it in a kind manner yeah i mean your friends have a vested interest in talking to you ever again yes and so ideally you're going to be able to get through that you know situation in a way that ultimately makes everybody comfortable uh and makes you a better dm and a tip for keeping things on track while you're running the game, get copies of everyone's character sheets ahead of time. It's pretty easy if you're giving them pre-gens, you just scan another copy. But having access to things like their passive skills, passive perception, passive insight, um, and their armor class, so you're not constantly asking, hey, hand me your character sheet so I can look at this number again on your character sheet, that will save you a ton of time during play. It'll help you stay focused and it'll help you stay comfortable. And, and yeah, use those passive skills. If somebody has a super high passive perception, like let it go. They don't need to make checks in every room in order to, to nail the thing that your module said they had to be there for. That's exactly why it's there. You're not ruining the fun of the game. You are giving them the advantage that that character offers. Uh, the other thing I'll say for this more generally is don't, you know, oh, you know, there's skill checks in this game. There's lots of skill checks in this game. So I'm going to make you skill check for everything. Don't do that. Uh, it can be extremely derailing. It can take things, you know, way down. And especially if you're like, you know what, there's no way they're going to fail my DC 10 check to do this mandatory thing that has to happen, like climbing stairs. Therefore, I make everybody roll and they fail. And now we're stuck at the bottom. Nobody can go anywhere. Don't do that. That's a, a really important thing. And one thing that I want to touch on that Randall just brought up. So passive skills. So a really interesting thing that we glean from the D&D Beyond, which, remember, is, like, officially Watsi approved That's this is how this works. If you have advantage on one of the skills that has a passive, your passive goes up by five because that's just what advantage does to the math. If you have, say, a passive perception of 10, but you get advantage on perception from a source, your passive perception is 15 for as long as you have that advantage. Just that's something that gets missed a lot. So keep that in mind. All right. I think we did it. Uh, so this is part one. All right. We have a question of the week this week. Uh, our question of the week this week comes to us from Gunk on the RPGbot.discord. What is one character creation option that you have in your head that you love to see in the game or homebrewed? I have lots of ideas. Eventually, I will write them down and try to actually publish something, maybe. But I would really like to see... <laughs> I would really like to see a UNT warlock. If you look at the stat blocks for UNT, there are two or three varieties of spellcasters. They're all warlocks. What pact do they use? Who knows? UNT have their own deities. They have this whole cult where they worship serpents that want to eat the world. Like... That seems like a pretty cool warlock patron. I would like to see that written down as a character option. So my answer is a little bit of a cheat because 
it's functionally just I want something from 3.5 in 5th edition. <laughs> so right now, the closest thing that we have to a Mystic Theurge is the Sorcerer's uh, Divine Soul. Divine Soul, thank you, from whatever the first one was, Xanathar's, I think, which is kind of similar, but it's actually just a Sorcerer. I really want somebody, a class, that functionally fuses arcane magic and divine magic. Um, and because there's not as much of a distinction in 5th in edition, I sort of see why there hasn't been. And because there's nothing like prestige classes, I sort of see why that hasn't been. But I think that that could be like an entirely new class is something that it, almost like a like Ur Priest, which uh, so another prestige class from 3.5 where rather than praying to a deity for your divine spells, you just said, it's cool that you have divine power. I'm going to steal some. And you basically just like bent divine power to your will. So something like that, where, or like, how do I take the arcane formula that a wizard learns and like apply that to divine magic? And and now I'm just going through more and more prestige classes in 3.5 because there were so many, but like, like geometer um, or like, Oh god, we, we talked about like the, the geometric magic feat from Pathfinder that was just horribly, horribly busted, <laughs> where you like roll dice and if you manage to make it prime numbers, then you won the spell something. It was shenanigans. But if like you saw this NP hard problem. <laughs> actually, no, it wasn't NP hard because they actually had solvers online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, had, they had solvers online. Like as long as you got your dice to a minimum of like seven, then you win. But yeah, so I, I would really like something that ties into like how do i apply that sort of logic to power gained from a divine source in a way that yeah, i mean like like i said it mystic theory sort of got there in 3.5 but even that's not really i, I mean I, I really want to lean into that mechanic somehow in a way that i don't think we've really seen yet okay so i don't know to, what to do with all of the character options that have already been given to me uh, I have an idea, but I actually have to look at the adults in the room to see if this actually already exists, and I've just overlooked it. I really, and also DMs are going to hate this. So if you're listening to this for first-time DMs, and what I'm asking for comes out, ban it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want what I had with the Necromancer in Diablo 2. I want, essentially, I want something built around either summons or, in particular, maybe necromantic summons. Um, I know we have raised dead spells. You know, we have, like, a view view summon scattered throughout but a a magic class and maybe warlock i'm gonna guess is probably the best way to go about this where what my feats give me in my subclass are specific additional abilities tied to raising zombies raising skeletons you know having a golem following me around this sort of thing i think that could be a lot of fun for combat so, so a summoner a, a class that is more focused on the summoning aspect of spellcasting rather than just, I am a wizard who knows some summoning spells. Yeah, like, I, I know no spells that actually do damage, but my friend here, Skeletor, absolutely knows how to deal damage. <laughs> yeah, so there's a big reason why that hasn't come back into 5th edition, because there were spell, there were classes that did that. In fact, Dread Necromancer, which we've talked about a little bit, <clears throat> was sort of the, the best way of doing that in 3.5. The problem is, the more summons you have, the longer your turn in combat takes, mm -hmm. and you immediately run into main character syndrome. That's if you wanted to do it as a bunch of pets. If you wanted to have a pet, okay. Like, and in fact, um, PF1 and maybe PF2 
uh, has Summoner. Yeah, Summoner came back in Secrets of Magic, which okay. was, I think, last year. So yeah. Summoner was a class that did that really well. Um, of course, then it turned out that the most broken way to do it was to stop having a separate summon and just wear it as if you're, you know, uh, the synth- synthesis. Yeah, yeah, the synthesis. You wear your summoned monster as pants. And it was busted. <laughs> but yeah, it, as a concept, as a concept, I think that that could be done well as long as you took it the one strong summon route rather than the undead army route that, like, Dread Necromancer does. I mean, I, I did, I think I, I've talked about this in a previous episode, but I did the math once, and at 8th level, you could have something like 4,000 commanded hit dice worth of undead because of the way that some spells worked and having, like, days durations. Yeah, it was not... Not functional. <laughs> so, okay, to get what I want, though, I, I don't think one pet is going to do... I don't want to be an undead ranger. I want to have... I, I want to have my necromantic army. But I think the compromise we might be able to come up with is a limit on clusters of creatures. So, like, I have three zombies, and those three zombies make one attack roll. Yeah, I, and deal one pool of damage dice based on the number that are in the cluster. And so I can only target one creature. And and you could justify this, right? Like, your mind can only send instructions to so many groups at a time based on... The 5th edition has mob attack rules to handle exactly that case, which I'm really sad never made it into 3rd edition because they had them for the D20 Star Wars RPG, which came out between 3.0 and 3.5. And somehow they just never thought... Uh, no, we'll never have enough monsters in an encounter that this would be useful. So 5e has mob combat rules. In Pathfinder 2nd Edition, you have a limit of having three controlled minions per character. Like, that is just hard. You cannot have more than three minions. And just, actually, it might be two. Oh, man. Now I'm sad that I don't remember that. It's two or three. And since you have to spend an action to command your minions, there is a built-in finite amount of minions that you can control during the game. Okay, what if we just stop for like 30 seconds, 5 minutes, whatever it takes. Let's look through the cool rulebook paper, and we'll see if we can find it right quick live. <laughs> so a couple interesting things. First off, in 3.5, there was actually some amount of mob combat. Uh, this made it into, I think, the DMG2. Um, there was explicitly, so like, I have 40 commoners with longbows, I don't want to make 40 attack rolls. And so there were rules for functionally turning that into a volley in an area versus a reflex save instead. There wasn't anything really like melee combat um, mob rules, but one thing I do want to say, so you said that you don't want to just be like a a, a zombie ranger with the one pet. So instead you have these three, but they're making one attack. So you you want like like a swarm of undead minions and, and you, you want to keep them like a, like a swarm keeper. <laughs> yeah, no, you got it. Absolutely. Okay. A <laughs> uh, uh, swarm keeper, ranger, and my swarm, little tiny zombies. <laughs> I, and that's fantastic. Perfect. Yeah. Which now we're the shaman in Diablo 3, I guess? Yeah. Okay. Nailed it. All hail the leisure Illuminati. Hey. I'm Randall James. You can find me at amateurjack.com and on Twitter and Instagram at jackamateur. I'm Tyler Campster. You'll find me at RPGbot.net, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RPGbotdotnet, and Patreon.com slash RPGbot. And I'm Random Pell. You're mostly just going to find me here contributing to RPGbot.net, both in terms of the podcast and, of course, in some articles. Although in places where people play games, you may find me as Harlequin or Harlequin. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. 
It's a quick, free way to support the podcast. Helps us to reach new listeners. You can find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for sourcebooks and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on RPGPod.net. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email podcast at RPGPod.net or message us on Twitter at RPGBOTDOTNET. Please also consider supporting us on Patreon, where you'll find early access to RPGBot.content, polls for future content, and access to the RPGBot.discord. You can find us at www.patreon.com slash RPGBot. so many but it was definitely like like one each yeah Yeah.